Genesis chapter 29. We're going to go to verse 21. Verse 21, and uh, it should be up on the screens for us. There we go. And if there's a word that I don't say, that's your opportunity to say the word that I don't say because we're going to do some fill in the blanks, all right, because uh, we're going to participate in church. Here we go. Uh, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Not necessarily what I would say to my father-in-law. <laughs> but hey, Jacob, we're not judging you, okay? Verse 22, so Laban brought together all the? Of the? And gave a feast. But when what? Evening came. That's an important detail. When evening came, he took his daughter Leah. Uh-oh. And brought her to Jacob. And then Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came. Oh. There was Leah. Now you know you're not cute when the Bible says you're not cute. It's a whole nother different level of not cute. You know what I'm saying? It's one thing for like me or Omar to be like talking to a single guy and, you know, being like, I don't think that girl's cute. You know, that's one thing. But for Moses to be writing scripture and the Holy Spirit to tap him on his shoulder, like, remember to tell him. <sighs> Leah was cockeyed. Like, for, like, that's a whole nother level of like not cute. Okay, we just read the Bible. Come on, let's go. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have? done to me. You've deceived me. You've tricked me. I served you for? Didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. You should have told me that last week. You should have told me that two months ago, homie. You should have told me that seven years ago. If I want you to keep track with the story. Jacob has worked for seven years to marry Rachel. He is in love with Rachel. He has now served this man named Laban for the daughter named Rachel, the cute daughter, <laughs> the pretty daughter. The reason that it's important that we take note of the fact that Laban waits until what? Evening comes for there to even be a wedding ceremony is because Thomas Edison had not invented the light bulb yet. Okay, there's no modern electricity. No, no, no. He waited until evening because once it's dark, it's dark. Okay, ain't no tiki torches lighting it up enough for you to see what's underneath a veil. Okay, Leah has a veil on her face, it is dark in the tent that they get married at, and he wakes up the next morning completely deceived. He has married. The wrong woman. And the Bible goes on to say that he then ends up marrying Rachel. So now he got two wives. Hashtag Old Testament. <laughs> Don't try that today. <laughs> My ADHD wants me to talk about this Mormon documentary I just saw, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Hashtag Old Testament. Okay. <laughs> Hashtag keep sweet. Okay. If you know, you know. Uh, and the Bible says that he loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. Now, I, I want to, I wanna like, go, go, go here because the Bible then says that God opens up Leah's womb. And every couple of years, Leah keeps popping out another baby. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Homegirl ain't cute, but she's fruitful. Oh, I'm going somewhere. Rachel is attractive and beautiful, but unfruitful and barren. Now, her barrenness physically is actually connected to her barrenness emotionally and spiritually. 
Because if you continue in the story, what you'll realize is that Rachel steals her father's household gods. Now, imagine if I go into a Thai restaurant and just steal the Buddha. Why would I steal a Buddha? Unless I worship Buddha. Come on. So she's stealing a household god because she is an idol worshiper. Her father comes out to confront her about stealing the household god. And homegirl has placed the household god on a camel. And she sits on a camel. And she got the nerve to say, I'm on my period. You can't check the camel. Now, any woman who lies about her period, thought I was going to get some amens from the brothers, may not be able to be trusted, okay? If you thought the Bible was boring, you've been reading the wrong book, okay? Bible's better than TMZ. The Bible is very entertaining. The story goes on to say that every time Rachel can't get pregnant, she blames Jacob for why she can't get pregnant, which means she's an idol worshiper, She's a liar, and she's spiritually manipulative. Rachel is attractive on the outside, but empty on the inside. Leah, not as attractive on the outside, but fruitful. And I need us to go a little bit deeper, because if it had not been for Laban tricking Jacob, we would never get Leah married to Jacob. And if we never get Leah married to Jacob, we'd never get a boy by the name of Judah being birthed into the earth. And the Bible, if you read the genealogies, tells us that Judah is the ancestor of Jesus. So much so that Revelation calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know what somebody has done to trick you, but could it be that even when man's ways are against you, that God is secretly working for you, that although Laban tricked Jacob, Leah is actually the best thing that could ever happen to this man by the name of Jacob. If it had not been for Laban tricking Jacob, we would never have Judah. And we wouldn't have the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, Joseph says it this way. What you meant for evil, God turned it around for my good, for the saving of many people. That's why you can't get confused and caught up in flesh and blood battles. Baby, the battle is not against flesh and blood. The next time you're about to lose your temper, you need to remember there's a God that's working behind the scenes. There may be a thorn in my flesh that's aggravating me and irritating me, but could it be? that in the middle of my frustration in the middle of injustice in the middle of Laban deceiving me that God is on my side and God is working for me so we have these two women Rachel real cute real pretty uh, I think in, in the Instagram world we call her a baddie the problem is she's a baddie but she's also bad for Jacob Whereas you have Leah, who Jacob would have never picked for himself. But it's actually, there's biblical proof that by the end of Jacob's life, he acknowledges 
that Leah is actually the best thing that ever happened. I, I want you to skip 20 chapters ahead. We're going to go, I think it's Genesis chapter 49. And, and Jacob has some perspective by the end of his life that I think is very, very helpful. Because how many people know what you find attractive in your 20s and what you find attractive in your 50s is real different? Come on. How many people know what you find attractive before you were saved and what you find attractive once you get saved is very, very different? I know girls who are like, I used to like gangsters, okay? And now they like Bible study leaders, okay? Like what you like before Christ and after Christ, very different. Come on, there we go. What you like before you're healed and what you like after you're healed, very, very different. Because there's a lot of us, we think we're in love, but you're not actually in love. You trauma bonded with somebody. Uh-oh. And you say things like, well, they just get me. Well, the reason they get you is because y'all got the same issue. The reason they get you is because y'all are dysfunctional in the exact same area of your life. The reason that they get you is because y'all both insecure. Uh, let me keep reading. I got 22 minutes. Okay, stay on track. Come on. Genesis 49. Jacob has a perspective at the end of his life. He's on his deathbed. He's blessing his 12 sons, and he's giving them instructions for where to bury him, how to bury him. He's giving his last will and testament. Okay, Genesis chapter 49, you're going you're gonna, to uh, fill in the blanks if I miss a word. Then Jacob gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. Verse 31, what does it say? There Abraham and his wife Sarah. were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebecca. were buried. Ooh. And there I buried Leah. Oh, I want to preach that real quick. Because when Rachel dies, you want to know what happens? She get buried in the middle of nowhere in an unmarked grave somewhere. Because again, come on, cute, but empty. Cute, but couldn't provide no advice, no wisdom, no counsel. Cute, but woo. Uh, can, can, can we keep going? Can we keep going? Leah, not as cute. But by the end of Jacob's life, he realizes, ooh, I spent nights in Leah's tent just talking. Oh, man, she was the companion that I had. She was emotionally stable. Can you imagine the strength that it takes to get married to a man that your sister is in love with? And you don't cause no drama, no problems. Ooh. And come on, we're going to go here because we got to be real. Uh, she must have. She must. She wasn't cute, but she wasn't that bad. Because I'll give Jacob the first one. You got tricked. But then you had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. You kept going back to that tent, bro. She was doing something in that tent. Heads up to all the ladies. Come on. That means that Jacob liked her privately. But she wasn't cute enough to be his arm candy publicly. Be leery of any man who likes you privately but does not claim you publicly. That means that that man is dating you for his ego, not for his future. You want a man who's dating you for destiny, not just dating you for how many likes a photo is going to get on Instagram. By the end of Jacob's life, he actually gets to the place 
where he appreciates Leah. And you want to know the challenge for all of us is to appreciate the stuff in our life that's not as attractive, but that's fruitful. All that is the fork in the road that we are all at. I, come on, prayer ain't attractive, but it's fruitful. Fasting ain't attractive, but it's fruitful. Orange theory ain't attractive, but it's fruitful. Come on, confrontation, not attractive, but it's fruitful. Budgeting, not attractive, but it's fruitful. My first house was not attractive. Oh, come on. I would have loved to be in a neighborhood that I could show off in a house that was moving ready. But now that house was ugly, but I made a whole lot of money when I flipped it. Because a lot of times the most fruitful things in life are actually wrapped in some ugly packaging. See, can we go a little deeper? Can we go? I think some of us assume, and I've even heard this taught from the stage, that God creates a world for Adam and Eve that's perfect. But that's not true. You want to know what God actually says about the world that he creates? He says that it's good. Not perfect, but good. Because if he had made it perfect, it would have made Adam and Eve lazy. Oh, oh, I want to preach this. Because God doesn't give you anything in its final form. God doesn't give you anything that's already perfected. No, what does God do? He gives them a world that is good. And then he says, work it. He says, till it. He says, cultivate it. He says, put your hands on it. He says, sow into it. He says, weed out the weeds. And I want you to sow good seed. He gives you stuff that's good. He gives Gives you a spouse not that's perfect but a spouse that is good and it's your responsibility to turn that good thing into a great thing that is your responsibility he doesn't bring you come on all the entrepreneurs in the room he doesn't bring you perfect employees he brings you good employees and it's your job to turn good into great that's your responsibility you sow you cultivate you prune and you turn things into fruitful things. The temptation is to go after Rachel. Ooh, that's attractive. That look good. She beautiful. Not knowing that a lot of times the things that look like they have it all together are empty on the inside. And sometimes we avoid the potential of things that are unattractive because inwardly, we don't want to do the work. So in the, come on, time I've got remaining. I'm going to give you five seeds that every single person has. Five seeds that every single person in this room has. Because if you are going to become a fruitful person, if your life is going to bear much fruit, then that means you have to steward and manage seed very, very well. You've got to steward and manage seed very well. And for a lot of us, we love to compare what that person over there has compared to what I have. And the, re the operative word here is these are seeds that every person has. You can't be jealous of the fruit growing in somebody else's yard when you neglect the seeds that are in your own pocket. You have the seeds to cultivate the life that you want. You've got to start to be a good steward and a good manager over your seeds. So come on. First seed. First seed that every single person has are your words. 
Every time you open your mouth, you are not just talking, you are sowing seed into your future. Me and my wife battled with infertility for five years. I'm, I'm actually proud of the fact we never said we're infertile. The only thing we could even close to say is doctors have diagnosed us as infertile. Because that's just a fact. That's as close as I came. And if anybody started sowing doubt seed around me, I walked away. Because words are seed. And I'm not just sowing words all day long. I'm also allowing people to sow into me. So Pastor Jabin and any other guest speaker and Pastor Omar can preach great faith seed to you all day on Sunday. But if your unbelieving uncle who don't like church and talks about tithing in a negative way talks to you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, that means your unbelieving uncle is sowing more seed than your pastor. Uh-oh. And we can't undo in one hour what you allowed your family members to do all week long. So, uh-oh, can we, can we keep going here? Can we keep going? To all the husbands in the room, if your secretary sows the seed of compliments too much, when the fruit of attraction starts to grow, you can't be all confused. You may want to put some boundaries in place. Hello. Oh, boy. Because the dominant seed sower is always going to reap the largest harvest. And it is your responsibility to put up a fence, to put up a gate, to not just protect your ears, but to protect the soil of your soul. Because anyone who talks around you is going to impact what you do in your life. You are sowing seed all day long, which means you need to speak positively. God does not look at the darkness and say, oh, and me. Get it? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, and me. It's dark. No, if God had said it's dark in Genesis chapter one, it would have got darker. God says, let there be light because we speak like God. We look at cancer and we say, let there be healing. Come on, we look at infertility and we say, let there be babies. We look at poverty and we say, let there be the abundance of God. We speak things into existence. We speak those things that be not as though they were. We take authority over our tongue. I don't just say what I feel. I've done a lot of marriage counseling, and I'm just like, whoo, you said them words? Dang, you said always? You said never? Whoo, you're going to have to reap what you've sown. And if you're continually sowing negative seed, you can't be all that shocked when your spouse lives up to the words you spoke. And then you blame them. Ooh, I'm preaching. Here we go. Well, how can I say this in a way that City Life Vegas is really going to get it? How can I say this? Um, ah, there we go. When I was a youth pastor, you know, if two students came to my youth ministry and they were together all the time, I'd love embarrassing teenagers anyway. And so I'd walk up to them like, is, is that your boyfriend? Is that your girlfriend? And of course, they'd always say, no, Pastor Manny. That's not my boyfriend. We just talking. And I used to always say to them, there's no such thing as just talking. Talking is the most intimate thing you could do with anybody. Go, you don't believe me? Ask somebody that been catfished. <laughs> talking, <laughs> talking is the most intimate thing you could do with somebody. 
devil be hurt. <laughs> I can't believe they was lying to me. He didn't build all these emotions just from talking. Now, how can I say this in a way that I think is going to connect? Here we go. Here we go. The serpent and Eve was just talking. Samson and Delilah, just talking. And he lost his anointing from oversharing secrets. You don't just get soul ties from sexual activity. No, there's soul ties that develop from conversation that you have with people. The number one seed that everyone, everyone, everybody in this room has are your words. Your words. Come on, number two. Number two. Number two. The second seed that every single person has. I need, I, I, you need to get this. Here we go. Are your tears. Come on. Um, I'm going to read this passage really quick. This is Psalm Oh, come on, iPad. Come on, work. Oh. I know, right? That old Bible work. <laughs> Psalm 126, verse 5. Psalm 126, verse 5. It says this. Those who sow in tears will reap in songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying what seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This, I, was at this youth, I was at this youth conference a couple years ago, and this girl came up to me. She's maybe a young adult, and she's crying and talking. And I was like, ooh, you double sewing. <laughs> <laughs> she walked up to me like, I just, I just can't bring up my boyfriend. I just love him so much. Oh, my, Pastor Manny, I just need you to help me. And I was like, you need to help yourself. Stop talking and stop crying, please. Because those aren't tears. Those are seeds. Can I ask you a hard question? When's the last time you cried over something God actually cares about? When's the time you cried over Las Vegas? When's the last time you cried over lost people? When's the last time you cried over people spending an eternity uh, separated from God? When's the last time you cried in the presence of the Lord? When's the last time you sowed some seed in a way that was beneficial for you, not just detrimental to you? At some point, you're going to have to realize, if I keep crying about stuff that God don't care about, I'm not trying to get God to care about the stuff I care about. I need to care about the stuff that God already cares about. God says some harsh words uh, to the prophet Samuel. These are hard words. He's, he's distraught because God has rejected Saul as king. And God approaches Samuel and says, how long will you mourn over Saul since I have rejected him as king? Can I ask you a question? How long are you going to mourn over the past five years that you think you lost? How long are you going to mourn over the two relationships that didn't work out? How long are you going to mourn over stuff? At some point, come on, Beyonce, you're going to have to find a good and goodbye. <laughs> and cry you a river, build a bridge, and get over it. And stop shedding tears over stuff that you're trying to get over. The, the, the message of our age, the message of our culture says this. No, whatever you feel, you're allowed to feel. Be authentic. The Bible don't say nothing about being authentic. The Bible says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not be authentic. No, no, no. Adopt the mind of Christ. Let this mind that was in Christ Jesus also be in you. My job is not to be authentic. No, I'm a wicked, sinful mess. If I'm authentic, I'm just going to what? Live out my most wicked, sinful life? No, my job is to crucify myself. 
pick up my cross and follow Jesus. No, I'm not allowed to just cry about whatever I want to cry about. I'm saying, God, I want your heart to become my heart. I want what you're passionate about to be what I'm passionate about. And if you don't care about it, I ain't crying about it. It was maybe we were three years into our infertility journey before I cried about it for the first time. And I remember, I don't remember what triggered me. I think I, I saw dad with his kid. And I remember breaking down. The enemy had told me that in order to be the strong one in our family, to be the strong one for my wife, I couldn't emote, that I could not cry. Oh, that's a lie from the enemy. Yeah. Tears are seed. Yeah. If you're the man in the family, if you're a father today, come on, tears are seed. You want to cry over your kids. You want to cry over their future. You want to cry when you're in the prayer closet. Tears are not just the form of, of something that's emotional happening. It's saying, no, I've tapped in to God's will for this person so much so that when I intercede for them, I do shed some tears. And I remember the first time I remember saying the words, I just want to be a dad. And the levees broke and my wife was there and she said, I didn't know you cared this much. We had been walking through infertility for three years and the woman didn't even know. That it was that emotional for me because I bought into this lie of the enemy that our culture says men don't cry, men don't emote. Oh, can I tell you, our whole journey with infertility actually shifted that first time that I cried in front of her. Oh, our prayer life shifted that first time that I cried in front of her. And, and from that point on, I could not pray about children without crying. It was almost this uncontrollable thing. I just started crying every time I asked God for kids. I would just start crying. And now when I look back, I go, I wasn't just crying. I was sowing seed. I was sowing seed. Come on, five minutes left. I'm going to give you the third one. And guess what? You're going to have to come back tonight for number four and number five. Here we go. Here we go. Come on. <laughs> this is a Sunday to double dip. Come on, number five. I'm going to give you number three. I'm going to give you number three. John chapter 12, verse 24. Let's put up John chapter 12, verse 24. John chapter 12, verse 24. It says this. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the and what? Dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Do you want to know the ultimate seed that you can actually give? is yourself you want to know what your church needs your church doesn't just need your money doesn't just need your time it needs you do you want to know what your family needs your family doesn't just need your time your family doesn't just need three dinners a, 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 a week uh, no, no no your family doesn't just need you to put your phone away no your family needs you your mind your creativity your ideas you what does that look like uh, guess what for me I recognized pretty early in my young adult life that my family had a generational cycle, generational trauma, a generational curse. My dad was incarcerated for 18 years. He took me to a crack house for the first time when I was five years old. Drug addiction and alcohol addiction ran in my family. My uncles are all alcoholics. My two aunts are prostitutes. Everybody in my family was massively dysfunctional. My mom was pregnant by the age of 13. We'd lived in the projects for generations. You don't know what the projects is? Google it. And I realized that although there was a proclivity in me, 
Because I was born in Adam, there was a proclivity in me towards addiction and towards deception and towards lying and towards manipulative behavior. I had to decide if my son is ever going to be born into something that's functional, I have to die to me. I have to die to the stuff I want to do. I have to die to this pornography addiction because addiction is addiction. And my rational, you know, my, my reasoning skills will say, well, it's porn and my dad was addicted to crack and that's different. No, the spirit of addiction is a spirit of addiction. And at some point you have to decide, oh, no, no, no. I am going to die to me so that the next generation can actually flourish and live and grow. I'm going to die. I'm going to wrap myself up as a seed and I'm going to choose death. I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to die. I will go to therapy. I will die to my pride. I will go get a counselor and I will stop allowing all of my preferences and my proclivities to dictate my destiny and my future. So what everybody in my family was broke? I'm going to die to poverty and I'm going to take this Dave Ramsey class and we're going to get some envelopes and my wife's going to give me an allowance. Why? Because I'm going to die to my pride. And if she better with the money, she better with the money. Let her go ahead and manage it. Well, men are supposed to go. Who told you that? Die to that so that you can live. Die to your ego so that you can live. What do you need to die to? So that you can become a seed. See, biblically, this is a great model. It's called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God works in generations. The enemy likes to trap us in generational cycles because God actually works in generational anointing. And to, to be quite honest, immigrants in our country really understand this in a profound way. The first generation, my, my dad's Cuban. The first generation will move here. They do not care where they live. They don't care what kind of jobs they got to work because the first generation sees itself as a seed. They see the second generation as a tree and they don't expect to bear fruit until generation number three. He's a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The worst thing you could do is to compare yourself if you are gen one, if you're the first generation in your family to be saved, if you're battling with generational curses and strongholds, then the worst thing you could do is to judge someone who's at the fruit level when you're at seed level. The worst thing you could ever do is to compare yourself to somebody who's third generation Christian when you're first generation Christian. Your job is not to bear fruit yet. Your job is to wrap yourself up in the seed of God's word and die. Wrap yourself up in this church and die. Wrap yourself up in a library somewhere and die. So that the next generation can grow a tree. So that the next generation can grow fruit. At some point, there has to be a generation that sacrifices. A generation that says, yep, I had a dream of going to college, but you know what? My grandbabies will go. Yep, I had a dream of being an entrepreneur, but you know what? My grandbabies will do it. Yep, I'm going to die. The reason that there are millions of Christians gathered around churches today is because there was one man named Jesus that did not love his life so that he would hoard it and keep it, but gave his life as a seed so that, what does John say? So that many seeds could come. You're in this room right now 
because there's a man named Jesus who would have loved to live into his 80s. He would have loved to live a long life. But no, he sacrificed his life and sewed it into a tomb. They came to that tomb on Easter morning thinking that they were going to find a corpse. But they found new life because that tomb became a womb. Can I tell you the hope that we have is that you can wrap yourself up as a seed and die. And we follow Jesus into death. And when we die, we experience new life because God turns tombs into wombs that is the power of the gospel if you're in the room today and you're like you know what pastor Manny you are preaching to me I have mismanaged seed it may be the seed of my words maybe the seed of my tears and it may just be the seed of my life like I have not sown myself into the soil of this ministry or this church or my family there's stuff I need to die to there's mindsets I need to die to there's ego and pride I need to die to so that God's vision for my family can actually come into fruition. I think this is a great message for Father's Day. If that's you, come on. I just want you to wave at me. I want to know who I'm praying for. I just want to pray for you. If you're like, man, I need, I need to be more fruitful. I have been attracted to things that are beautiful. And the, God keeps trying to give me Leah's. And I keep rejecting it because it doesn't look the way that I want it to look. But today, you're right. I need to start seeing the potential in every Leah that God brings into my life. If I'm praying for you, just lift your hands. I just want to know who I'm praying for. I want to know who I'm praying for. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters at City Light Vegas. God, I thank you that we are going to begin to manage seed with precision and as good stewards. God, we thank you for mindset shifts today. God, we thank you right now that your anointing is in the room. And what people thought was impossible or difficult, this week, would you give them the grace to do it? Give them the grace to hold their tongue. Give them the grace to say things that they think are crazy. Give them the grace to speak those things that be not as though they were. God, if we've been crying and mourning over stuff for years that you've taken away, God, would you heal us in a moment? God, come on, in this anointed moment, would you do what it would take decades of a therapist or counseling to do? Would you do it right now? God, we believe you for an open heaven today. And God, for those of us whose selfishness has kind of gripped us, we're Christians, but we're living for ourselves. Would you help us to die so that we can actually walk in eternal life? God, we thank you right now for a blessing on every person in this room. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Can we all say together, amen, amen, amen.